Hello, and welcome to the Lacey Alderson Show. We are so excited to have you listening today. I've got a lot to talk about, so I'm just going to jump right the hell in. Um, I am so honored to have our guest in studio today. Um, We've got Dr. Nicole Anders. I'm going to have her introduce herself in a minute, but um, Dr. Nicole Anders is in-house, and it's honestly just such a great blessing to have her here for so many reasons, and you'll feel the same way here shortly. Um, First and foremost, I got to give a shout out to Pink Box, um, our sponsor. So grateful to have them a part of our journey every day. So grateful to have them part of our community and a part of our um, events and, you know, fun Saturdays when we stop in to get a donut or two. They're just the best. Um, I am here also to promote their donut of the month, which is called the green machine it's a glazed pistachio cake topped with pistachio cream cheese buttercream and pistachio cake crumbs if you're allergic to nuts please do not ever have the donut of the month but everybody else we want you to try it get in there give it a whirl um and i'm so looking forward to what they bring out for spring and bring out for next month moving forward with the holiday so once again pink box donuts is in house so good you will lick the box grateful to have them here Diving right on into things today, we've got Dr. Nicole Anderson House. Welcome, doctor. Hello. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited for this pink box. This pink box. Um, I do want to tell you that I, Nicole is humble in a sense. She said you can just call her Nicole. So if I can reference her as Nicole, that's fine. But to the rest of you, she will be Dr. Nicole Anders because (laughs) I think that's necessary. If you've earned the title, I feel like you should be called that accordingly. So um, Dr. Anders, we're grateful to have you here today. Um, Without me explaining to you kind of how we had you specifically, because I really wanted you, I reached out to you, I told you I girl fan you, there's all this love. Um, I want my audience to get to know you a little bit. So starting right out of the gate, I want to hear how we got here from the time you were born. Where was it? How did you get to Vegas? How did you get to become, you know, where you are and become the doctor you are? Um, but this, I'm kind of passing it over to you. Let's let us into your world. Perfect. Well, that might take the entire podcast because mm-hmm. it's complicated, mm-hmm. but I'll breeze through it a little bit. Um, Little known fact about me, I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. I didn't know that. And most people don't know that. Um, so my father's in the film industry. So that's the long and the short of that. And then we moved around quite a bit. So I won't bore you with all that. But we ended up in Vancouver. So I'm Canadian. I'm dual citizen. And my family still lives um, in Vancouver, in the suburbs of Vancouver. And I consider Canada and Vancouver home. I love it there. I'm very Canadian in many ways. Um, people tell me that I'm polite. I don't think I have quite a bit of an accent anymore, but um, Vancouver's cold, and I don't like the cold. So from Vancouver, I went to college, uh, undergrad in Hawaii, Honolulu, lived there for um, almost four years, and while I was there, I did a year abroad in Spain. So I went to the beaches of Spain. Um, then I moved to Southern California for grad school. And if you're sensing a theme, yes, I love the beach. (laughs) Then I moved to Puerto Rico uh, for several years for my internship and fellowship. So I studied clinical psychology. I always knew that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist um, ever since I was young. And we can get into that. Yes. And so then I was in Puerto Rico for a while. I'm bilingual. Um, I speak Spanish. So I did therapy with my patients in mostly Spanish for several years there. And then as that was all rounding out and I was becoming licensed and ready to fly off on my own and be this clinical psychologist that I always dreamed I would be, I figured, where, where should I go next? The beach, of course, was my thought. And that didn't happen because here we are in the desert. And I originally came here because my brother was living here for a while. And I knew um, kind of the timing of that. He wasn't doing very well 
And I just wanted, we are, we were so, so close. And I just wanted to move back and well, move, I guess to here, move back closer to where he was. And we actually, I lived in his house for a bit and, um, I've been here ever since. And that was 2016. And I stayed here because I have a wonderful job and I've created a beautiful community. I met my husband, fell in love. I have two baby boys. And so Vegas is just, it's been home, uh, which is surprising because, don't I miss those waves, but oh. I'll be back eventually. And you're not far. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's one of the great things about Las Vegas. Absolutely. What's, it's what's kept me. So Now, I love to talk to, I love to hear from people why they moved to Las Vegas. So your brother came to Vegas yeah. and you followed him. Why did your brother come here? I mean, what? So my grandmother moved here. Okay. And so my brother decided um, that he wanted to move here. He was very close with her. Um, she recently passed away. Um, our Oma, and we're German. And so he moved here to kind of just you know, yeah, be close to her. He went to school a little bit, dabbled in certain things in Vegas and just Vegas, it stuck with him. Sure. So, yeah. Okay. So your grandma was here, he followed, and then you followed to be with him. Yep. The family followed each other. Okay. And then how did we get here today? Like, I mean, literally in front of us, you got a job here or were you still kind of feeling things out? What, where, what direction did you go to once you came to Vegas? Yeah. So, um, when I was in Puerto Rico, I was doing my internship and my fellowship at the VA hospital in Puerto Rico in San Juan. And I knew I wanted to stay working with veterans. I specialize in trauma and PTSD. So that's a wonderful population. So I applied to the VA here and, you know, got the, got the job and they've kept me ever since and so that is my full-time my full-time position but I now do have a small private practice um, in addition to working full-time at the VA. And you've got two kids and you're a wife and you've got all these things going on so we say this we kind of like brush over it but oh my gosh. It's a lot some days it's a lot some days most days it's a lot but I'm very organized and that is just my magic you know, skill. That organization is huge, (laughs) right? Yes. Well, and then something like COVID happens and did COVID Mm. make your job more difficult or did it not really change as much? Walk me through that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'm really fortunate that in some ways we became even more needed um, and I'm happy to serve my community and and be needed in that way. What changed was we went from face-to-face to to tele. And that was a pretty easy transition because I was already doing some teletherapy before. So Zoom is my best friend and it's really allowed me to stay connected to my patients. And I know there was a lot of hesitancy from therapists as well as patients, but I think we've really bridged that gap and uh, we do really good work in teletherapy. Now, um, I don't mean to be a creep, but you have some, some tie also to yoga, correct? Yes, yes. Oh, no, you're not a creep. I mean, hello. Yes. Let's, I mean, I, I want to know all of it's the things. It's so funny okay. because, you know, this happens to me all the time that people ask me, what do you do? What's your story? And I forget the yoga piece. And I think it's because it doesn't feel like work to me. Yoga is just, it's been my own healing. It's I been my that. own therapy. And I always forget to say that I'm a yoga instructor. Um, so I... Somewhere in there, when I was living in Puerto Rico, um, I went to Bali for a month and I became a 200-hour yoga instructor. um, And that was a wonderful training experience. And ever since then, I've really grown that. And I I used to teach here at a a local yoga studio and I kind of have have retired that since with all the other things on my plate. Sure. But I still work with a nonprofit here called Trauma Recovery Yoga. Okay. So try T-R-Y. Is that Joyce? Yes. Yes, yes, Joyce yes. Bozen is, she's family to me. And uh, That's really cool. Yeah, we kind of, I was there when Trauma Recovery Yoga birthed just an idea. Right. And 
been with her ever since and I still am pretty involved with the training with them. So you work alongside them or when you like an event comes up or something like that? Is that what it Every is? Every training they have. Training. Um, I do a portion of their training. I teach the psychology of yoga and then certain events, if I'm able to with my schedule, I definitely come and pop in and, and really support. I love trauma recovery yoga. Now, um, let me ask you a question. In terms of the trauma, you are a psychologist. Yes. And is trauma, I mean, that's what we keep saying over and over and obviously mm. with the VA. Are you working in any other, I mean, are there any other forms of, of psychology that you're utilizing at this time or in your sessions? I mean, obviously PTSD has got a variety of, you know, needs. What do you normally have to go through or what are you normally implementing with a session with your clients? Right, yeah. So I guess it's, it's kind of different. Just, I mean, everything's so different. Every client's so unique and sure. I think that's the best way to approach anything. But I'm trained in several different evidence-based trauma therapies, so won't bore you with that long list. But um, I'm very holistic. So I like to really teach my patients about how the mind and body are connected, what happens to their body and their brain when a trauma occurs, whether it was yesterday or 20 years ago. Really talk about that in, you know, in layman's terms so they can understand how we can take that knowledge and what kind of skills and tools we can use how can we help the mind? How can we shift the mind and thoughts and cognitions? How can we change behaviors? How can we slow down the breath? How can we, you know, um, calm down the amygdala and the central nervous system, really getting to the science of it all. And I, I use, um, whether it's meditation, yoga, different mindfulness, as well as talk therapy. So I definitely have this kind of combination and I think you have to approach it at all angles when you are healing trauma. Yeah. And the private practice you currently, you know, started on the side. Yeah. Um, is that mostly still trauma-based as well? or those trauma-based clients or is, it, is that kind of a more of a broader audience? It definitely is a more broad audience. I feel like, you know, the world brings you the patients that you need and you find the therapist that you need. So for whatever reason, I still have a bit of a trauma focus. Um, I like to work with women and women's health, especially having had children. I like to work with postpartum and, um, you know, anything related to women's health as well. So it's kind of like a little sub niche. Absolutely. I just feel like you're talking about your life and I mean, <laughs> you have like the most amazing life. I'm sure you hear that all the time, but oh, what you. a great spirit, you know, what, um, what a variety of a background. Your background is very diverse besides the beach being, you know, the, that constant kind of flow that, that you were explaining. But I'm listening to you thinking this is like a really unique person. Thank and I'm you. sure all these experiences really contribute to the therapist you are today. I hope so. I definitely bring myself into the room. I, you know, I think there's boundaries with therapy. You know, I don't share my story necessarily as openly with my patients as, as you would think. It's, it's not a mutual conversation. It's not about me. So it really is about them. But I think the things they don't know about me help me to listen, help me to empathize, help me to have an open container. And now that, you know, I've recently written this book, I know that it's, I've become more public and I've made my story more public. And that was a little bit scary at first because, oh, now everyone can read your life. Um, but I think it's only made me a better therapist and people have connected to me on an even deeper level. I know that you have a strong following in a lot of ways, and I'm actually holding Nicole's book in my hand. I'm I'm going to digress for a minute because um, I'm now going to explain a little bit on this back end. I wanted to start this conversation before we started recording, and then I thought that really wasn't appropriate. Um, I wanted everyone to kind of hear about how um, Dr. Nicole Anders ended up in front of us today. Um, so those of you who do follow my podcast know that, uh, you know, substance abuse and substance abuse disorder is not something that's new to my life. Um, I've lost quite a few family members, friends, 
um, over the years to this. And when I was going back to get my master's degree, I focused on addiction studies and worked with people at Westcare who were trying, you know, they were currently in rehab. So my passion is truly dealing with addiction studies. That's what I love. So a couple years ago, um, I was walking my dog, which is usually my time to think. That's my time. I really try to just kind of go into my zone. And randomly um, on Instagram, something popped up saying follow, you know, one of those follow recommendations. So I clicked down and it's this account and the account is called um, at Cody's Big Sister. That happens to be Dr. Nicole Anders' um, Instagram. So if you're not following it, I, I hope you do. But this is the power of Instagram, right? I mean, people talk about how they hate social media. It's horrible. It's this, it's this, this, this. People are getting off of it. They're joining different programs, whatever it may be. But um, this is the, the part of Instagram and a part of social media that I just love more than anything is that here I am on this walk with my dog and I end up on this page. And Dr. Nicole Anders Pagers, I'm going to let her explain further, became a part of my life. And it became um, almost kind of like, this is going to sound crazy, but almost kind of like an obsession. Like I kept looking at her page over and over to see when she was going to repost, you know, post again. Um, I would like long for a new post. Um, and it, I fell I fell in love with, with her and with her story. And I actually fell in love with her brother um, for a number of reasons. Um, but... As I'm listening to this, somebody said to me the other day, you know, why are you having this specific person on? And it was her, her writing. It was her story, don't get me wrong. Um, but once you're in therapy, you hear tons of stories. Each one is so unique and so special and they really need to be honored as such. But there was something about this writing that was being conveyed that touched me in a very different way than somebody sitting across from me in a therapy room or somebody, you know, sharing a story or um, even reading a book about somebody else who was struggling with addiction. There was It was the words and it was her ability to share. And um, like I said, you couldn't help breathe this and not fall in love with her brother. So this book that I'm sitting in front of me, she did turn into a book and it is now published. And that's what the author that she's referring to, my, referring to as she says, my story, um, the 100 goodbyes on addiction, heartache, grief, and love. And so the fact that it's in hard, you know, in a copy and binded right when she handed it to me, my eyes welled up because I thought I sat with this journey, not without knowing her total stranger, but this book meant so much to me. And I ended up sharing this page with about 10 or 15 of my friends. They all started following and we would have conversations about her without her knowing and about her brother. And wait a second, her brother reminds me of my brother and wait a second, her brother reminds me of, you know, you know, or she reminds me and her coping reminds me or, um, those of you who do listen know that my friend Ashley just lost her, you know, daughter last year, um, her two-year-old daughter. And so I've, gone back and read some of those just because it's very different, but that grief process um, of what somebody goes through. So I'm now going to pass this over to Dr. Nicole Anders, and I want her to tell us her story. Before we get to the actual Instagram and we get to all the pieces and the sharing, I want to know her story. I want to know about her brother. Oh, I just want to pause just to appreciate your appreciation. And I think oh, this is what it was all about. And hearing you talk about how it touched you is the reason that I share. And I think that is connection, right? And that is the healing. And, and you're healing me and I'm healing you and we're healing each other. And, and Cody, who's my brother, he had this domino effect that's so amazing. And I just had chills listening to how it impacted you. So I really, I really appreciate you saying all of that. So Absolutely. But to answer your question... Um, the story of Cody, 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 Cody was my best friend and 
I miss him so much. He was, oh, it's hard to put in words, although I right. did put it in words into a book. <laughs> um, Cody, you know, I, I think why I shared so much about him and, and who he was, and I really just wanted to take that stigma of when people think of someone who uses substances, they are disgusted. They are, they think that they're bad and broken and wrong and, and there's shame and there's this whole dirty cycle. It's, it's awful. And I really was hoping to paint this picture of my brother, of who he truly was. Because if you saw Cody pretty much up until the few weeks before his passing, you would never know that this boy, this man, uh, struggled. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know he had trauma. You wouldn't know he used substances. You wouldn't know that in a few weeks or months he was actually going to overdose accidentally. You wouldn't know. He had bright green eyes and like this kind of quirky, half crooked smile. He was tall. He was always fit. He really, you know, valued his his fitness and his body. And he went to the gym and he just, you know, he was he was the kind of guy who would give his shirt off his back and all of his friends, anyone who ever knew him, knew he was always first to pay if we were having, you know, drinks or whatever, if we're going out for dinner or wherever. He just was generous and he loved animals. If he could, he would have rescued them all. He, he did rescue two, two dogs that um, now my father has one and his best friend uh, has the other. But he just, he was so animated and we went on adventures and we loved to go cliff jumping, and when we were in Mexico, we would go on ATVs, and he was just always the first to just live life. And so in, in a lot of ways, he really did live life to the fullest. Um, and he was my brother, and, and he was my best friend, and I know people say that a lot, and it's cliche in, in some ways, but we lived together as roommates on numerous occasions um, in Vegas, as well as in Hawaii, as well as obviously in our childhood. Um, and he was sensitive and we would talk for hours and sometimes we would just call each other and talk, you know, for two, three hours. And we'd talk about our emotions and our heart and our relationships and our breakups and our goals. And, and we could spend lots of time on the phone or in person. We just really had a strong, strong bond um, that was very visible. And, and I miss him. I miss him very, very much. He's older or younger? He was younger than me. He was a younger brother. Yeah. Okay, so he um, he sounds like, I mean, he sounds like the best. Yeah. You know, it's just, he, when you explain him, even your face lit up first, you know, while you were describing him. Um, and I, it's, a, it's sad because there is that cliche, right, of, of my brother, my best friend. But for some people, it really is their best friend. It's their everything. It's their secret keeper. It's their storyteller. It's the one that, you know, you want to share things with before anybody else it's I use this term all the time but you're in case of an emergency I mean they become that um that figure I mean that's who they are so I, I love that you said that though because sometimes people go oh it's it's a brother it's a best friend but it's not it's for a lot of us it's our person yeah no he was my person and I was his and, and there was a, a very very strong bond that we had so can you walk us through Cody's story? Do you mind doing yes, that? Is that going to make you uncomfortable? No, because I want this podcast to be about you, but part of you is Cody. Oh, I am Cody's big sister. I identify with that, right? Like I define myself. And I think that's important because how, you know, you could ask someone, who are you? And you could list all these things, but I truly, I, I define myself through my relationships, right? I'm Austin and Caden's mom. I'm Chris's <laughs> wife. I'm Ed and Julie and Jacqueline. That's a long story. Um, I have a stepmom <laughs> and a mom and they're, Equally, my mother's. Um, I'm their daughter, but and I'm Cody's big sister. I'm also the big sister to three other wonderful siblings. But 
I think it's okay. It is part of who I am. And we sure. are defined by our relationships. Um, yeah, Cody, uh, gosh, when we were, it was the two of us. So we, we are, we share the same mom and dad. We have a blended family. So, but Cody and I have the same mom and dad and our parents divorced when we were younger, but, um, they always had a cordial relationship and my mom became ill with cancer and the other day someone was asking me how long she was sick for. And I think she was sick on and off for about five or six years. So it was, she was sick. She was better. She was sick. She, she was better. It was kind of this ongoing thing. Cody and I were young. Um, I was 14 when she passed. Um, and Cody, that would make Cody 12. Um, so we were little. So your mom passed from cancer. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she passed when, like I said, he was 12. I was 14. And What's your mom's name? Her name was Jacqueline. Jacqueline. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. It was, it was traumatic. It was, you know, we lost our mom. It, there's nothing, you know, it was awful. Um, and awesome. our dad's wonderful. And he tried his best. And, you know, you just don't replace a mom. You know, he couldn't be our dad and our mom. He was our dad. Sure. And so, you know, we both have our own relationships with him. But he just wasn't mom. And I think Cody and mom, they... We were very, very close, um, and he was younger, so less coping. He was also more introverted. Cody was shy. I'm the outgoing one. I'm the one who's, you know, in a tutu as a kid dancing around the room, and, like, all our home videos are me as the, you know, spotlight, and Cody's just kind of like, oh, whatever, that's my sister, and he would just roll his eyes or, or whatever, and I think in some ways, you know, and I write about this um, in the book as well, because in addition to the posts, I've also written five different chapters on grief. So we can talk about that later. Please. But, um, you know, Cody, he kind of just was the silent, quiet type. And I, you know, I was, I acted out and I had my moments and I was angry and I was this and I was a teenager who lost her mom and I dyed my hair black, if you can believe that. And I smoked cigarettes for a year because it was part of the look and whatever. But Cody just kind of watched on the sidelines and he was hurting inside, but he didn't express it. That's just who he was. That was his personality. He was also a man, a boy, a male. So we kind of, you know, that's a whole nother topic where we, our culture doesn't let men express their emotions in the same way. But because I was so expressive, I got my needs met, you know, I found mentors and I found teachers and I, um, you know, my dad, I talked to him more. He found me a therapist who I really connected with and she, you know, in some ways kind of saved my life. Cody, my dad tried to put him in therapy. It wasn't his thing. And he just seemed okay on the outside. So no one really knew that he was hurting. And I truly believe looking back at his story, not healing through that childhood trauma of losing our mother was the beginning of the end, right? It was, he was in so much pain, didn't know how to cope. And so in high school, of course, as most people do, he experimented with marijuana or this or that, sure. like the kind of high school stuff. And I think that led down a different path of maybe some more party drugs. And that was still quote unquote developmentally normal. And one thing led to another. And over the course of many, many years, it just kind of, he found opiates, um, through an injury as, as many, many people's stories. And oh, wow, this opiate is called painkiller. It is supposed to kill your pain. Oh, it also kills my emotional pain that I don't know how to deal with. This feels better, this feels good, I can function. This pain, it's so much, I'm just gonna use this. And it becomes this cycle. So then other things happen in your life, you go through a breakup, you lose a job, whatever, this life things. 
you don't know how to cope. You've never been taught that. And now you have this substance that's helping you. And from there, you know, that becomes expensive or you can't get prescriptions. And that's a whole another talk of the pharmaceutical companies. And, oh, my gosh, I can go on that soapbox for a minute. Sure. But then you find it cheaper and on, you know, on the street and maybe illegally and, and whatever. And it becomes this shameful, dirty thing because... We grew up in the era of just say no. Thank you, Nancy Reagan, um, for nothing. Um, and I say that openly. But it, we, there's this stigma, this culture of like, oh, my gosh, heroin? Oh, meth? Oh, like it's for whatever reason, some substances are so bad and you can't even talk about it when everyone, you know, drinks alcohol and it's no big deal, but it's killing people too, right? And so I think that sent him down this dark shame spiral which one thing leads to the next to the next to the next and by the time you know I could see that something was really wrong he wasn't ready to admit and then finally when he was you know we tried several different rehabs um we tried even sending him down to to Mexico to like a holistic rehab that was using psychedelics for um therapy and integration and you know we thought that that could work and we found a really great rehab in Vancouver, and that actually is the one where he passed away. And we tried so many different options. Um, and the story of, you know, what I know is he had a slip up and thought he was buying something and it was fentanyl and, you know, um, didn't know that it was fentanyl. And fentanyl is incredibly strong, powerful opiate. And it was also, he also had been, you know, clean and sober. I hate that word clean, but that's the word I'll use for now because it's our word, um, for several months. So his tolerance was low and it just was a whole mix of things. And unfortunately he passed away from an overdose. And they said it was the fentanyl ultimately. Yeah. The toxicology report actually said that it was pure fentanyl. Um, and there is no way that, that he would have been buying pure fentanyl and so that's another problem is these street drugs are being laced or even replaced with fentanyl. And fentanyl is a very, very, very dangerous substance. Um, what year was this that he passed? 2018. Okay, so um, I'm a public health analyst. And so I work currently and I work for um, a high intensity drug overdose program. And so my case of study is fentanyl. It has been for quite mm. some time. So I just did a product um, last week that got sent out on pure fentanyl for 2020. Um, and I can't, you know, once again, in terms from like a, the standpoint I'm standing in, I'm going, gosh, 2018 was even kind of early for fentanyl. It was like just starting. Um, but everything you just said is so completely accurate because it literally is, you know, nobody goes to buy pure fentanyl and it's 50 to hundred percent, you know, times stronger than morphine. I mean, it's, it's so strong. And so you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance for it's so, but you are right. It's the drug supplies and it's, you know, like we, you said a minute ago, we could talk about pharmacology forever. It's like, there's so much to be said on that end, but you know, these cartels and the drugs coming over the border and the gangs and putting them in the wrong hands. It's just this whole, it, we're in such a bad, horrible place. And even knowing that doesn't bring Cody back. And that's the part that I'm thinking of his little face from the pictures on Instagram. And I'm thinking, you know, this young man was coping. He was trying his best. And, mm -hmm. um, I just, I know this sounds so sad, but even reading the, the, posts like I just wanted to meet him so badly mm. because you bring up such a humanistic aspect of like you said beyond the fact of this was a human being this was a, my brother this was a man he you know he made great choices and he was a good person yeah. and like we said with Jenny I don't want anybody to not have a name or just be a number um, my very best friend lost her brother to a heroin overdose and um, we talk about this all the time because 
people frown upon it, you know, in some regards of, oh, you know, oh, it's just, oh, oh, we don't do that. That's not, oh, that's a shame. Or it wasn't cancer. It wasn't something, it wasn't something noble, if you will. But um, coping and taking medication, that's somebody trying to get out of the state that they're in. And that's noble in a sense as well that people, a nobility I don't think people are ready to address. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I love that you said human. You know, he was a human. He was a beautiful human and a wonderful human. And I wish you could have met him. I wish my children could have met him. And I wish so many people could have met him because he just, his story wasn't, in my opinion, wasn't over, but you know, it's not over, right? We're having a conversation about him right now. Absolutely. And, and so he lives on in, in other ways. And I think that's been part of my acceptance and my grief and my coping has been to see those pieces as well. Now we're talking about his story, but his story is combined with yours. Like you said, yeah. it's that human connection. Let's go into the book. What yeah. was the catalyst for the book? How did you say, wait a second, I'm going to go to paper yeah, or, or, you know, laptop or whatever. What happened? So I've always been a writer. And with, if you asked me as a four-year-old little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to write books. Um, I didn't really know what that meant. And then when I got older, I realized, oh, that's not really a career. I mean, it is, but it's kind of like saying you want to be a famous actress, right? So um, not necessarily a money-making career to put food on the table. Sure. But it's always been a, a passion of mine. I actually have always kept a journal and I have all my journals since I was 12, um, still to this day. And sometimes I like to look back on them and just see. And I think that's an important piece. I think writing is very therapeutic. I encourage my patients to do that. I've always just done that as, that is my art. I'm a, I'm a writer, that's my art. But um, with journaling anyway, I think it's important to reread them because sometimes people write a journal and it's almost like they're just vomiting their emotions and okay, that's step one. But I always say, have you reread your journals to my patients? And most of them say no, but I encourage anybody listening, reread your journals because you can kind of see where you're at and you can laugh or you can say, wow, I've grown so much. And I think that's really important. So writing has always been huge part of my therapy and I kind of hadn't done it in a while just life you know I had a journal where I'd enter here or there and just kind of fell off a little bit and I was deeply deeply in grief but when when Cody passed um, I was five months pregnant and shortly after my son was born he was actually born um, six weeks early so there was this you know a few months and then he was born and I was really consumed with becoming a new mom and being the best mom for him. And so it was like this lovely, beautiful distraction. And I don't think I sat in my grief the way that I knew I needed to, just knowing what I know about trauma and grief and mental health. So I knew that hmm, if I was my patient, what would I say to me? And I would say, go back to writing. That's what you love. And I thought, okay, I'll do it. I was talking to one of my best friends, uh, the one from Boston, mm -hmm. uh, over the phone. And I said, I think I'm going to start writing. And I don't know how the topic, it, it just kind of one thing led to another. She's like, oh, I love your writing. Like, why don't you post it? Then at least I can follow it. And it really was an idea of like, well, maybe I'll just make an Instagram. I'll post it. It can be its own little thing. And, you know, Rachel or of some my other friends or my family, whoever wants to follow can follow. It was never meant to be this big project. But as it kind of grew... It became that. And somewhere along the way, several different people said, hey, you know, you should make this into a book, uh, maybe add some chapters, do different things. And that idea tossed around. And um, I happened to be friends with a, a book publisher and he's a good friend of mine and he owns Lifestyle Entrepreneur Press. And, he, you know, I work with him and we created this book. And um, the cover art is another thing I want to talk about because it's actually my eye um, and my sister drew it. My little sister, uh, Cody's little sister as well. So um, Dahlia, she is an artist. She is a 
fabulous artist that her art is everything. She is an artist. Mine is writing and hers is, you know, she can do anything. She's actually um, a, a tattoo artist at the moment. And she drew that and it's supposed to, it is my eye and it just came out so beautifully with watercolor and everything that, that became the, the cover art. So it's definitely a passion project for our family. Can I just mean that actually gave me the chills Yeah, because it is, it's all, it's like, a, like you said, it's not, it never affects just one person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a family. And if you don't have family, it's a friends. It's a, and look at me, I'm a complete stranger and I'm enthralled. Mm-hmm. I can't get enough of this. And how much more special does that become? You guys have to see this cover. Um, I'll put a picture of it up on the Instagram too, so you guys can check it out. I mean, it's really just so beautiful and knowing the background behind it. I mean, before I didn't know, and I was like, oh wow, but that's just, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, thank you. No, it's just, it's, I, and I love that that was how, I mean, I, just, I think that's, that's, I'm a family person though. I think family over everything and family can be oh, so dysfunctional I'm in so, so many ways, you, but I have to stop you because you just said family over everything. Mm-hmm. And that was Cody's saying, Oh, mm-hmm. the synchronicity is yeah. not lost on me. No, mm-hmm. no. Cause I, I believe that though. I believe it over everything. I just, um, and as, as, like I said, as, as dysfunctional, and as strange and as, you know, compartmentalized it can become, it can also become your strength, um, you know, and, and that route. So I, I love that. So you decide, okay, I'm going to put this in. And then how did you even start? Did you know it was going to be the hundred, the hundred, what yeah. was the format for it? So, you know, um, I mean, Instagram in some ways only lets you do a certain amount of characters. Sure. So it kept me to these kind of short and sweet posts. Um, and hundred just felt like a good number. Someone asked me about it and I, and I, I think maybe one of the posts even talks about it. I'm not sure. And I just picked it. it. It's kind of arbitrary, but it's, you know, a big number, but a small number. It's achievable number. And I started it. My very first post was the one year anniversary of losing Cody. And it took me almost a year to write the hundred. At first I was kind of writing every day and really in it. And then I just didn't want to write just for the sake of writing to like force myself to produce something. Then I almost let it kind of come out organically when things would remind me of him or when I'd have a thought about it. And it just kind of flowed. And, you know, finally it was almost a full year. um, And it felt like this, this year of healing, this year of being very intentional, this year of focusing on my grief and my inner world and sharing that. And as, you know, as I started posting, of course, my friends, uh, Rachel was the first to follow and uh, all my other best friends and family and, and they got a lot out of it. And I just started sharing and, and people who didn't know me would find it and they would comment. And I've responded to every comment, every message that anyone's ever written me because it's so meaningful. And people would say things to me like, this really helped me today. Or if my post was about me suffering, they would give me encouragement. Or people would tell me their stories about their brothers or their sisters or their whoever's. And it just became my own little community where we were all connected. And, you know, today I got my 600th follow. And that might not seem like a huge number to these, you know, bloggers and whatever, but I know that every single one, I've never solicited follows. I, every single one of those people wants to hear what I have to say and I want to hear what they have to say. And for me, it's just so humbling and brings me to tears that 600 people care enough about me and Cody to follow this Instagram. So it's, it's wonderful. And, and it was really healing. 
And I feel bad because when I started to initially introduce you and describe this book, I didn't really explain what that was. And I'm happy you did because literally it's 100 goodbyes. That's the title of it, but it's really 100 posts. At least that's how I had read it. Mm -hmm. You know, how it came through is that it's 100 posts of stories, recollections, messages to, how else would you describe it? I always like, now I've been referring to them as love letters. Yes. Because even the ones that are angry. And when I say, I hate you, I'm so mad at you. Why did you leave? Why did you use? Why didn't you tell me? Because there's that piece. Yeah. Then there's the memories, like you said. Then there's the the posts that are very sad, like I miss you. Um, there's the wistful ones, I wish you were here. Um, sometimes when I've had dreams about him, I write about that. They're all just love letters, every single one. Whatever the emotion is, they're a love letter. And they're all for Cody and they're for the world. And um, all 100 are in there. And like I said, I wrote a chapter on each of the five stages of grief that um, is not, you can't read that on the Instagram. So that's kind of like, the addition, like the this incentive to get the you, book, please, is, absolutely. Uh, you know, five these five additional chapters, as well as some you know photos and additional things to make it really rounding it out to this book. Um, and that's why you know you mentioned it's not just a book for people who are struggling with substances or lost someone to that. It's a book about grief too. It can be for grief in any way. It doesn't matter how that person passed or or whatever. It's about grief, and I I've found that a lot of people who you know, maybe they lost their person to cancer or an accident or different things. They've also related to it too. So that's been kind of a, an additional connection and blessing. Can we talk a little bit about the grief without giving too much away of the book, yeah. the five stages of grief? How would you describe that? Or for people that maybe are sitting in grief listening, um, um, what can we kind of give them just like a little outline of, of you know, maybe what they're going to, what, what they can experience or what those stages look like and, you know, how you feel about it. Yeah, yeah. And so the five stages are not my creation by any means. Um, it was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I got to give her credit. Um, she's no longer here. And David <laughs> Kessler, he's awesome. He does a lot of grief work and he's a pretty famous grief therapist who created these five stages. And I should say that they're not linear and they never are, were meant to be that and they shouldn't be. And um, sometimes you're stuck in one of the stages for a month or a year or whatever. And sometimes you feel all five in one day and that's okay too. Um, and you kind of bounce around and in a very nonlinear fashion. Um, and so the first stage of grief is denial. That's like the initial shock. Um, and I write about that and I kind of tell the story of when I found out Cody had passed away. So I really detail that, um, in that chapter. And the second stage, now I'm like baby brain blanking on what the second uh, stage is. Um, and my can't the book just in case, because if you've had a baby, you know the baby brain is real. Yeah, uh -huh. no, no worries. Um, the second stage is anger. Um, anger, because now that the shock's kind of worn off, you're like angry, angry at the world. Like, why did you do this? What's going on? The third is bargaining. And that's the please God or please whoever, or please universe, or if I could just, if I could, the coulda, shoulda, wouldas, go back in time you know, take me instead of them, that whole mentality where you sit there. Um, and then it's depression because now you've, you've gone through all of this and you said, okay, well, it's real. And when the reality sinks and sets in, gosh, it's depressing because you are so sad that you missed this person. And then the final stage, um, outlined in the five anyways, is acceptance. And that's when you, you know, um, reshift your life and, and mm, sometimes you can make meaning out of it. And actually David Kessler recently wrote a book. Uh, I think it came out a year or two ago. It's called the sixth stage of grief, making meaning. Um, I'm probably botching the title, but that's, you can Google it. Sure. And so he's kind of having this new idea that 
once you get to acceptance, okay, and then what do we do with that? And that's where we create podcasts and we write books and we, you know, um, do 5Ks and we create programs and nonprofits and all these things. And so he talks about that sixth, like, stage. And I guess the book itself for me was my sixth stage, is my sixth stage, you know, so. Gosh, I think that's so neat. Um, I think it's neat that you did the work. Do you, do you, mm-hmm. I feel like you watch people in grief a lot and you, you know, you don't want to be a therapist unless somebody asks you to be their therapist. They're paying you, you know, for mm-hmm. those services. You, um, but when you love somebody and you're watching them go through this, um, it's funny how they want to get through it so quickly. Um, at least people that are cognizant or they're aware that there are five stages. I've got a couple of friends once again, that have been through serious trauma or been through serious grief. And it's like, well, wait a second. And I'll talk to them one day and I'm thinking to myself in the back of my mind, you know, I, the love is still there, but I'm thinking this is happening. What, you know, you, are you in this or, you know, are you allowing yourself to be in this or because you know that there are these five stages, you think the sooner you get through them, the pain is gone. And when you were going through this step, I mean, how long did it really take you to kind of, uh, you know, acclimate and I shouldn't acclimate, it's not the right word because I almost think of it as a resurgence, right? You're kind of a new person once you come out of these five mm. stages. Um, what was your process through? What was it like going through these? Which one was the hardest for you or which one did you find yourself the most uncomfortable in? Yeah. Um, so I'm most uncomfortable in anger. Are you? Yeah, because I, I spent so much time as a kid being angry and I did so much work to not be angry. And I actually think my go-to is anger, um, which is surprising to a lot of people because I, you know, I am outgoing and bubbly and I love yoga and I'm like peaceful now. And, but my friends who knew me before I found yoga would, would they laugh, they go, this, this new yogi you, whoever you are. Um, but I'm most uncomfortable in that only because I see how destructive it can be or it has been in my past as well. And um, I also had a really tough time writing about that, being vulnerable and honest about that because I thought it was unbecoming, it's unladylike, it's unprofessional. Um, so that's one that uh, I don't like to admit, but I know it's the one that I need to admit to. Um, and then I think I, bargaining, I stayed in bargaining for a long time. Bargaining was the one that, um, and I still go to it, right? I mean, none of these are right. like, I haven't right. resolved any of it. Um, I still definitely uh, dabble in all of these all the time, but bargaining, I think I, I got stuck in because it's really easy or it can be at times to say, man, if you went, if I just went left and I didn't go right, it wouldn't have happened. If I only went to, if I only asked him this, if I only, if that day he would have worn a different shoe, you know what I mean? Like the butterfly effect can really, really have a hold on us. And I sat in that for a long time, especially because I am a clinical psychologist and I am in this field. And I felt like I didn't save him. And I felt like I could have. And if you ask me to this day, sometimes I think I still could have, you know, like if I only went back, if only he'd this, if only he'd that, whatever. And so that was bargaining. And I I really got stuck there for a while. Um, And then of course, acceptance. I remember the first time I even had a thought of acceptance because it was so unacceptable and it still is unacceptable. And I want to clarify that acceptance doesn't mean it's acceptable. Um, And it's still intolerable and I still am going to miss him until the day I die and then beyond, I'm sure. But acceptance, I remember the very first time I had a thought of sitting outside of my backyard. It was a beautiful Vegas summer night, which, you know, summers are awful unless it's nighttime and then it's wonderful. And I was in my hammock and the breeze was just right and whatever. And I had this thought, I was like, oh, at least, you know, he's not in pain anymore. And I might've even whispered it to myself out loud. And I just, 
it was my very first thought of acceptance and it was months after he passed. It did not come right away because people would say those things to me always in a better place. He's not yeah. in pain. And I know that it always was coming from a good, good place, but it didn't help. And it was when I had that first thought of acceptance that was like an exhale that I thought, oh, there might be something on the other side of this. Um, so hopefully that answered the question. No, I got lost in the, in the response. But that's the best part. That's the best thing I love the most about a podcast. Yeah. We were talking about this before we went live. Um, Nicole and I, cause it's, you know, you reach this point where it's like, I almost don't want to talk to people that come on before we press live because it's, I just want this all to come out. You know, sometimes you'd end up down a rabbit hole and I love it. It's like my favorite. Cause that's the organicness of just that connection of where we're at. Um, but I, I, you said so many things, you know, I think the part of your account that hit me the first time was that I think you demonstrated anger and I, and you said it just a minute ago, women aren't usually allowed or it's not socially acceptable to be present in anger or be vocal about it much, you know, much less. Um, but how powerful anger is for, for so many people. I remember you, you know, walking your, your audience or yourself even through, you know, what that felt like. And I remember feeling like that is so refreshing mm -hmm. because how often is it like, oh no, no. Um, I feel like I follow a lot of self-help people and, you know, oh, and, and they touch on it or it's, it's discussed, but not really through their own experience. And that was so refreshing to me. Like, wait a second, I'm mad. Yeah. We're allowed to cuss on the show, but you know, okay. I just, um, I'm, I'm cussing the book a lot. Yeah, so. <laughs> good, please. And I think that was some, another part of it too. Yeah. Um, and I purposely didn't, you know, revisit some of your posts or reread them before you came on. Cause I thought, I know I'm going to go down this route with you. And I mm -hmm. wanted to hear it, see it again from fresh eyes. Um, but this idea of that anger is real and we're not usually allowed to let it out there. Yeah. And I especially had that. I just, and I think it's, it's a message that's told to us and in, in very overt ways, as well as like kind of covert ways, like just the way society is and Instagram and filters and this and that. And like, we know all the, you know, I, I hate to like bash on the bloggers, but like, they're always so happy and their house is so clean. And it's like, fuck you. No, it's, that's not the way the world is. Yes. Um, and so yeah, anger, anger is a tough one. And I, I felt, I think, uh, actually the, the chapter on anger and it's, it's so relevant to this discussion here, the first couple sentences, what I write about in this um, is, you know, this chapter was most difficult for me to write. I started it over and over again. I would write, take a pause from writing, then find any excuse not to sit down and write again. It was this chapter I most wanted to avoid. For me, at this stage in my life, anger is the emotion I actively try to evade. This is because I truly feel I've already spent enough of my lifetime being angry, and I just don't want to be angry anymore. It has been very difficult for me to have a healthy relationship with this emotion. I've done so much inner work not to jump immediately to anger and rage. I also had some doubts about writing this chapter. Anger is not flattering. It's not ladylike. It's not professional. I sat at the dinner table with my husband one night and insisted that I needed to delete this entire chapter and find a different approach. I worried that if my patients found out or my boss read this or if my family really knew how I felt, they would all abandon me, fire me, not want to see me, turn on me, reject me, disown me, the list goes on. I told him, my husband, that I thought it was too revealing and too raw. Immediately, as I said these words to him, I knew that I was feeling extra vulnerable with this topic and that this is exactly what I needed to talk about and the story that I needed to tell. So that's how the chapter opens. So just to 
No, but <laughs> like I have the chills because that's, I, I, you just kind of summed it up. It's like how many times, I just, and I feel like especially when you're going through this the massive amount of grief, it, it's a sense of exposure too, right? Mm. Letting people see you. It's a different kind of vulnerability than maybe you're used to. But I love how honest you are. And like you said, you became aware of it when you actually said those words, like, wait a second, that's not who I am. Cody's big sister. She can be angry. You know, you allowed yourself to do that. Yeah. And it's so important. So whatever it is, you know, whether it's anger for me or sadness for somebody else or whatever, like you can't skip through these stages and you have to feel them and you have to really really fucking feel them yeah um to get to the other side no it's so true it's absolutely so true you brought up another part with the um bargaining you mentioned mm. um you got stuck in it you know you sat in it um anybody who's really gone through grief um I would say that that's probably one of the, even I've known these stages for quite some time, but even as I was writing them down, I thought bargaining, I, bargaining is one that I've been stuck in for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, um, I have a tendency to get stuck in depression too. But when you said that about the bargaining, it just, it gave me that flesh again of like, wait a second, you're willing to bargain anything. There's this sense of like such desperation yeah. of, you know, and second guessing and, um, as a therapist, I lost a, one of my dearest, bestest, oldest friends to suicide. Um, and I talked to him that day. And I talked to him like three o'clock and I found out that he had passed um, at like nine. And to this day, as a th- could you imagine the guilt? I mean, I carry this guilt with me every day of like, wait a second, I'm a therapist and talk to you that day? Like I, I talked to you that day. Like mm-hmm. I didn't, I mean, how could I not have known? How could I not have seen? How could I not have abandoned everything I did and ran? As, so even though it's been, like you said, you, you, you stay in them, you come out of them, you come back. It's not linear. It's, you know, much more dynamic and, and experience. But as you're telling me this, I love that you're willing to share that, that because I think that can be seen sometimes as a weakness too. Like, wait a second, you know, you're willing to compromise or do anything you possibly can. But here you are saying, wait, it's okay to sit in it a little bit longer. It's okay to let it come back to you from time to time. I, I love that vulnerability from you, Nicole. Thank you very much. And that acceptance, I love that you remembered where you were. Oh, yeah. That first time. Because I'm sure it feels a little bit like you're abandoning or almost, yes. um, what's the word I'm thinking of? You're, um, <sighs> well, what happens is, and I, I feel like we're on the same, like, yes. we're, we're yes. on the same thought here yep. is you feel like if you're okay, it's not bad. Any, like it kind of diminishes the pain and you'll always be in pain, but it's okay to be okay too, right? Like I, I hear a lot of people and myself included oh, I just, I don't want to forget their voice. I don't want to forget this. And so they sit in the depression and all of that for, for maybe longer than they need to because being happy or joyful or finding acceptance almost feels like you're dishonoring them or, sure. or betraying them in some way. Yep. Um, and that's kind of, it's yeah. exactly how I feel because it's true. You feel like it's a betrayal. Yeah. It's a betrayal. Like, how can I go on and be okay with this? You're not here anymore. Yes. This isn't okay. I'm not okay. I just, I'm and not. Any person that I've ever asked, what would that, you know, whatever the person is, you know, what would Cody say to me? Cody would say, get up. It's okay. Live your life and live it extra magically and wonderfully for me. Right. You know, like, no, he never wanted me to be sad. And so sometimes you kind of have to work through those thoughts and those cognitions to get yourself to, to be, to accept acceptance. I still can't believe it's been such a short period of time. 2018 Mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's three years ago, three years on April 1st. So it's coming up. Yep. Yep. And I actually um, am formulating my April 1st post in my mind. It lives in my mind before it comes out. And let me ask you a question. So what what do you like to do on his, on his, do you celebrate more his birthday or do you celebrate more his, you know, the death date? Where do you connect to him now? Yeah, I guess kind of both. Um, On his birthday, I, so it's been a few birthdays Mm -hmm. and um, my sister and I, um, we always speak that day. We're very intentional about telling stories about him 
Um, I always try to have a dance party in his honor and just kind of like live life. Like October 12th is his birthday. And that day for me, these past few years without him has been like, I'm going to just celebrate life and celebrate him and just be in it. Right. Like dance in the shower kind of day. Um, and then April 1st, I definitely do honor. Um, it definitely has a bit more of a somber tone to it. Uh, the past few years, I, um, for whatever reason, um, green was his, like his favorite color. And so, um, I'll do something with green, like, uh, I send off a green balloon into the sky. Don't worry. It was like biodegradable. Um, <laughs> cause I, you know, I love the earth too. Um, but, uh, or I'll wear green or just something, you know, um, uh, and the past couple of years, I guess it's only been, you know, two anniversaries. I spend it with friends or family and, um, you know, the first year I was with my family in Mexico and last year, uh, we just, you know, our neighbors all got together and, and we just talk about him and, um, I always try to do a little self care Th- this year. I have a massage booked. I love so, it. You know, just something to say, you know, today's a hard day and you don't have to go to work and you get to just do something else. How is it when you hear other people's stories? Is it comforting to you? Um, is it, does it create more of a wedge? Does it make you, do you listen to how they're kind of articulating it? Does it make you feel closer to him, farther apart? Do you find yourself judging? Where, where do you stand when people are sharing their stories with you? Oh, I love it. I wouldn't become a psychologist if I didn't want to hear about people's stories. Sure. Because um, it's funny, people actually apologize to me for telling me their stories. And first, you know, I tell them, no, no apology needed. I get paid to hear people's stories. So if anyone wants to hear your story, it's definitely me. Sure. Um, and I, I don't think we should be sorry for going down a rabbit hole and telling, you know, over telling details and repeating ourselves like that's just human nature. So I love hearing stories. I, a lot of people reach out to me, you know, in the DMS on Instagram and tell me about their person that they lost. And, um, usually I just tell them, you know, how they impacted me and that we're in this together and that my heart is with them. And, um, you know, there's nothing I can say to make it better. And I don't try to be their therapist that I just say, Thank you for sharing and, you know, we're in it together. And, you know, if you ever want to share more memories about him or her, just, you know, write me. I'm, I'm here to hear it. What are things not to say? I just had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who's going through some really bad grief. And we've kind of like sat on the phone and giggled, believe it or not, about things people will say to you. Because you don't want to encourage people not to come up to you, right? Or have this conversation. Or if somebody sees you, you never, you want to be approachable. Because mm-hmm. like you said, you're somebody, you just in your energy sitting with you, Nicole, like you're such an open, loving light of a person. Like you can just feel that. So I'm sure when people are in your space, it's like, wait, but there are definitely things people say and you're like, how the hell did that just come out of your mouth? Like, were you born on Mars? Yeah. Like I, and, and I know like having a, a therapy background and especially with your, you know, the psycho, the psycho psychologist aspect of things, you're kind of looking at it going, wait a second, that person came from like a good place. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we have to kind of laugh for a minute because things come out of people's mouths and you're like, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, again, people do mean well. They do. And I, I personally, I know it's because I'm a therapist, I'm sure is I can see that. And I usually kind of just go with that. Sure. Um, but I'll never forget. It was, it couldn't have been more than a week after Cody, Cody had died. And I was up in Canada. Um, and my dad and stepmom and I, we were at the, we had to stop at the post office and where we live in Canada, we live, in, I say Vancouver because if you're not from Vancouver, you don't know where Tawasin is. It's like, you know, a small little suburb, but it, it is a, it's a small little suburb and people kind of know each other and all that. And so this woman, and I had never met her before, but I think my, my parents maybe knew who she was. I think she might be like a friend of our grandma or something. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, she stopped my dad at the post office and, and like she felt the need to go up to him 
few days after the grief and she was like, oh, he's in a better place. And that's my number one. And also like the way, you know, and I know she, you know, she was coming from a good place, but like, oh my goodness. Like, first of all, you, you don't need to say something. Right? Like she, she didn't need to, this woman who we don't quite know, like really went out of her way. Like it was, the timing was off. I think that's what turned me off the most about it. And that you could just see my dad's face where he just like almost had to make it okay for her. Absolutely. And was like, yeah, you know, we're okay. When we're like anything but okay. Right. Um, so I think with grief, yeah, it's, it's, it's really sticky and people get uncomfortable with it, which is why they say stupid things, but the whole better place to me, you know, that almost has a religious tone. And if, if someone's religious, that's totally okay and fine and wonderful, but a lot of people aren't. And a lot of people don't necessarily believe that. So it's almost like forcing beliefs to say, Oh, you know, Oh, he's in heaven or Oh, he's in a better place. Like let, if you know that that person believes that you can encourage that. But I think that that's one of the ones that I just was like, yeah, but he's not here. So right. Right. That's, I don't care what place he's in. I want him here right, right now. This second. Yeah. Um, why do you think people feel the need to say something? Why not say nothing? What do you think it is about humans and like our human nature to feel like they, that woman saw you, she doesn't know you, bless her. You know, she mm -hmm. obviously wanted to say, but why do you think we even say anything? Why can't we just, I mean, what, what do you think that is about us? I think, I think as humans, we do have a drive to connect. So there's that, that positive piece of it that I think people just, you know, we, we are empathic creatures. We want to connect. And I'm sure she does, did feel for us, you know, and, and maybe it, everyone has grief right sure. so it triggers her own grief and maybe she just wanted to in her mind make our day better by giving her condolences and that's fine too on the flip side there's maybe a voyeuristic piece to it where people are like oh they make it about them and oh I said this to to that person today or I really knew them and they kind of create the story about them um and you know I think it's okay for people to say something if the timing feels right sure and I think the best thing to say is tell me about them. Or maybe if you did know them, tell, the best thing that people said to me was they would tell me stories about Cody, especially ones that I didn't know that I wasn't there for. Um, those are my favorite because, of course, people experienced Cody when I wasn't around, although we were, we were together a lot. Um, but people would tell me, you know, I remember one time when we were in second grade, you know, he gave me his pencil because I didn't have whatever. I love it. And that is the best. So if you knew the person share something sure. if you didn't ask about them. And I think those are the two safe, safe approaches at any time, whether it's one day or 100 days after they've passed. I do love that. And the other one that I have a hard time with is when they said it, it's going to get better. Um, yeah. you know, or, or it's, you know, it's going to get, it's, it's just always, yeah. cause it kind of like diminishes like where you're at or diminishes maybe cause you know, in your heart life does go on in some mm -hmm. capacity, you know, but in that moment or where you're at, there's not a lot of hope or, or joy or, or, you know, you're not really looking forward. Um, that's another one that always kind of throws right? me. And what for is a loop. better anyway, yes. right? And how do you know it's going to get better? Yeah. It could get worse. Yeah, it's right? so true. Yeah. So these, these statements that are just, he's in a better place. It's going to like, they're so factual. It's like, how do you know? Right. Right. Um, so yeah, definitely avoiding those two big ones. Now you've been through a lot of trauma. I mean, I'm going to be honest, you've lost a mom young, mm -hmm. you know, your brother passed away. I mean, it's, this is a lot. This is a lot. This is so much. How, I mean, you, you said you went through counseling. Oh yeah. What do you do besides like the yoga and to kind of keep yourself aligned to not falling off the rails? Cause you have got a lot on your plate. I, some days I just cry because I have a lot on my plate. Yeah. I have to be honest. I'm, yes. I mean, I have a two month old, so I think that's pretty on par with two months postpartum. Um, but in general, aside from these, these months of sleeplessness that I've experienced, 
Um, therapy. Therapy is number one. I've been in and out of therapy many times. Um, I've had different therapists over the course of my life. I think therapy, you know, a good bout of therapy is six years or sorry, six months or six years, whatever. Sure. Uh, six months to like two years is like a nice little like dose of therapy right. in my opinion. Right. I don't think you can get too, too deep if it hasn't been several months. Um, so I've had several doses of therapy and gotten different things out of them. Uh, I'd like to take breaks from therapy too, because I think that integration is important. Sure. Um, writing, of course, I've already mentioned. Connecting with friends and family. Yoga. Yoga was and is, you know, and, and I, I should extend that to other movement, but yoga really for me, being on my mat and breathing and having that time and moving my body and sweating or not sweating and, and releasing just really helped me through my own trauma. And there were days when I was on my yoga mat, I would just cry in Savasana or I'd be really pissed and I'd want to do more chaturangas or, you know, just the movement and unlocking whatever was trapped in my body um, is, is and was really, really healing and helpful. Um, so, and other than that, like I said, I'm organized. I'm so organized. Even my kids' clothes are organized by color. Um, so, yeah. Um, organization helps me feel like things are in order and I know it's totally just in my mind because no matter how often, no matter how much I color code and put things in the right boxes, you know, the world still can be chaotic and messy and, um, learning to be organized, but also embrace the disorganization and, and the sitting with. Sure. Um, so yeah, I guess those are a few things. I love those. I love to hear what other people do because everyone's got their own thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. everyone's kind of, and especially with you, with, you know, your background and your professional background, you can mm -hmm. see what it can do. And I, I love when people say they go to therapy as therapists because it's everything, right? Oh, you got to. You really have to. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of all of the things put together. Um, how has grief changed motherhood for you? Oh, wow. You obviously don't know motherhood without it, but yeah. what is the role that grief has played? Because I think some people think, oh, wait a second, I'm going through grief while I've got a young child mm -hmm. or I've got an infant or, and you know, I'm not doing enough or I, my child can feel, you know, how have you been able to use grief in motherhood? Oh, wow. It, I mean, I like to say that when your heart breaks, uh, let it break open, right? So I think that's what it did. And I was pregnant with Austin, my, my toddler, five months pregnant when Cody passed and I think that was one of the biggest things for me, especially in those first few days when, when the grief is just buckles your knees and you're screaming literally because you're in so much agony. Emotionally, I had a little baby in me and I definitely was like, I hope this baby doesn't feel this. Um, and so at the time I was working with a midwife and I expressed all that to her and, you know, with some encouragement, she first of all checked the baby and he was totally fine and still is. Um, but I, I would have actually conversations with him and she encouraged me to do that. And it was really helpful because I would go through these big emotional cries. And then when I like had a moment, I'd put my hands on my belly and I'd close my eyes and I would talk to him and I would say, you know, mommy's just really sad right now and it's okay. We're going to be okay. You're still safe and I love you and I'll protect you. You know, if you feel my sadness, no, it's not about you and, and it's okay. And I, and I just really spiritually connected with him and whether it helped or not, it helped me. And I think, I think that that's how I kind of dealt with that when he was on the inside. Sure. Um, and then on the outside, you know, I guess one day we'll have to ask my kids what it's like to be, uh, you know, the child of a psychologist. Sure. But, um, we're very open with emotions. I always, even right now with my toddler, I label his emotions and, um, I don't necessarily, 
let him see me in big emotions, but I, I don't also, I also don't run in my room when I'm crying. Like if something's frustrating me, I'll cry. And he's at this age where he says, mommy, you're crying. And I say, yeah, mommy's a little bit sad right now, but everything's going to be okay. And sometimes people cry when we're sad. And so just instilling that in him. Um, and that's kind of how I bring that into motherhood. But to kind of just touch on the question, which was how has it changed me as a mother? Right. I don't know motherhood without it. But I think my heart broke when Cody passed, but it broke open and each, the birth of each of my children has just broken my heart open in these big ways. And I just feel my feelings and I am, I feel like the joy is much more joyful because I just let myself feel. And so grief has given me that gift of sometimes I just cry happy tears because my children are so beautiful. Sure. <laughs> you know, absolutely. So. Um, do you see Cody and your kids? Yeah, of course. Yes, I do. Um, you know, Cody and I think we look similar. Um, you know, some siblings don't look like Cody and I definitely look like I'm the girl version of him or he's the boy version of me whatever. And so that's passed down to my kids. I, in my kids, when they, when they smile and my son, Austin, he loves animals. And I see that that was Cody and you know, Caden, my, my newborn, he's only two months, but he's so calm. Um, not like Austin. We call him the wild man because he is a wild man. Um, you know, I see that kind of calm demeanor maybe in Caden and um, just just little boys, yeah. right? And this is whenever I, I work with a patient, um, you always have to find something likable about them. Most people I like off the bat anyways, but sometimes people are difficult. Sure. Um, and I like to think about what they were like as little kids. And having little kids helps me with that. And so when I think about Cody... I think about Cody as the little kid who was joyful and, and, you know, then the, then the 12-year-old who was in pain. And, and I think when you can look at somebody and see them in that way, that's where the humanity comes. And I try to do that with, with anybody. And, and even when I see somebody, you know, um, who doesn't have a home and is, you know, when the homeless population is on the street and, and I see them in, in whatever, you know, shape they're in. And I try, I try to look at them and go, wow, that was someone's baby. And then I look at my own baby and I go, someone held you or hopefully held you like I'm holding this baby. And I just think it really, babies and kids can bring us together. And we all were babies and kids. So that's where we can connect and find humanity. I love that. I really do. I'm this week I had to go to the corner's office and right above the corner's mm -hmm. main room when you go in. Actually, it's, it's a quote in front of almost every room. The quote I'm going to butcher, but it's something <laughs> along the lines of you are privileged enough to be able to touch somebody's loved one beyond these these doors. You know, you, it's, you get to... You get to be in the presence of somebody's most favorite person, you know, treat them not only with dignity, but their family with dignity. And that stuck with me all week. I thought about that saying probably a hundred times over the last four days since I was there, um, just because it's, it's true. It, just as much in life, right, as it happens in death, that cycle of what happens. Um, but it's true, like that's somebody's loved one. That's, it's special. It's, it, there's a reverence. There's a, a love that's attached to it. Yeah, everybody's somebody's baby. It's true. I, I just love when I think like that. And, when, and thank you for reminding me. Um, let's finish with a couple of lighthearted things. If you sure. could go to a concert today, what concert would you go to? Oh, I'm a country girl. Oh, you uh, are? Okay. Yeah, I know that surprises people too. Um, I love country music. I don't know. Um, Old Dominion's one, Garth Brooks. Okay. Uh, whoever. Okay. What about, what's your favorite movie? If you, put, if you want to put on a movie, what's it going to be? Oh, this is going to make you laugh. Um, I am not a movie watcher and my dad's in the film industry. Um, People, my friends find it funny because they'll quote movies around me and I literally have no idea, like even You're the blank. most generic quotes. Yeah. 
Uh, I love Grey's Anatomy. Okay. So that's TV D- show. Absolutely, but that counts. That absolutely counts. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Okay. So let's say TV. That's, and yeah. I love that your dad's in the industry and you're like, no, not I'm so like, much. I can't, couldn't be bothered. But I do hate when people do quotes because I feel like everybody in my life does a quote and I'm like, I have no idea what you're Yeah. I'm like, whatever. Even yeah. though it's basic ones that like people should know. Right. I'm like. Common nope, ones. Nope. But if you quote Grey's Anatomy. You're on it. Oh, those are my friends. Okay. <laughs> and, and I actually love this because yeah. I'm, it's, it's humbling nonetheless. Okay. So Grey's Anatomy, what's your drink of choice? Um, so. Well, um, are you an alcohol drinker? Yeah. Okay. Occasionally. So what's your, let's do alcohol first. Yeah. What's like your uh, fun go-to? Well, I guess I definitely like red wine okay. and, um, anything with like mez- mezcal is like my, my, my woman right now. I haven't drank a lot in the past couple of years because I've been pregnant right. a lot. Right. Um, mezcal is, I love mezcal. It's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. So different, right? Yeah. Um, what's your favorite workout? Yoga. Always? Uh, pretty much always. Okay. Yep. Um, sunrise or sunset? Sunset. I don't like to wake up in the mornings. I am not a morning person. <laughs> Motherhood is slapping me in the face to become one. <laughs> Do you have a sport that you love to watch? No, 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 no sports. I am not a sports watcher, and I uh, secretly judge people who watch too much sports. <laughs> okay, I love it. I, this is why this way I ask yeah. these questions. I want to know all the things. Yeah. I already know the answer to this because you've stated it. Lake yeah. or ocean? Ocean, ocean, okay. ocean. In capitals, I'm going to put that too, yeah. so that I really remember <laughs> that one. If you're going to have some candy, is it going to be chocolate or fruity? Probably chocolate. Chocolate. Yeah, but I, I'm really a big fan of gummy bears too. So chocolate covered gummy bears or no, is that no, too much? No, that's, that's too much combo. It's a lot yeah. going on there. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have you missed most during COVID during the last year? Has there been something you've missed or maybe a location My or a place family. or your family? Yeah, they live in Canada, as I mentioned. And so, um, you know, I know a lot of people are, you know, can go state to state and that's fine now, but um, travel to Canada is not really permissible at the moment still. So we haven't seen them in a while. Um, if I were to talk to you in five years, what's the first thing you really want to think about? Or let's put something out in the universe for you for five years from now. If we listen to this again in five years, mm-hmm. what will you have been able to accomplish? What will you hope you will have accomplished? Well, Austin will be almost eight mm-hmm. and Caden will be five. So I really hope that I have loving, compassionate, well-mannered little boys uh, love who it. love adventure and hopefully will have traveled and brought them with us to many places as the world opens. And, you know, continuing this platform and um, sh- I'll still be a psychologist and shifting to um, more projects like this and uh, maybe another book and more speaking engagements and things like that because that's definitely um, what I see myself growing over the next several years, growing children and yeah. growing my platform. Nicole, I cannot thank you. Dr. Nicole Andrews. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for being here today. Oh, I can't thank you enough. I feel like we've learned so much about you and I feel like you've let us in and you've allowed us to feel with you and connect with you. And mm. that's, that's the, I think that's the greatest blessing of them all. Um, not only your time, but I, you don't have to push it. I push everything on my show because I'm that person. I'm a pusher, the pusher <laughs> man. Um, please follow her at Cody's Big Sister. She wrote that book. I want to make sure you guys get it. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm flipping through it. There's pictures. And there's an Audible too if, okay. you, if you like to listen to my voice. Okay, we're doing all the things. So Audible is an option too, which I love that yeah. you mentioned that, but it's yeah. 100 goodbyes on addiction, heartache, grief, and love with Dr. Nicole Anders. Um, thank you to Pink Boxer being our sponsor and Dr. Nicole Anders, I cannot thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day.